Section two of the Crusades by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one Causes Leading to the Crusades. Part two. The contagion spread. From almost every country of Europe, wanderers took their way to Palestine under the conviction that the shirt which they wore when they entered the holy city would if laid by to be used as their winding-sheet convey them like the carpet of solomon in the arabian tale at once to heaven an enterprise so laudable roused the sympathy and quickened the charity of the faithful the pilgrims seldom lacked food and shelter and houses of repose or entertainment were raised for his comfort on the stages of his journey as well as in the city which was the goal of his pilgrimage here he was welcomed in the costly house which had been raised for his reception by the munificence of pope gregory the great if he died during his absence his kinsfolk envied rather than bewailed his lot if he returned he had their reverence as one who had washed away his sins and still more perhaps as one who had brought away in his wallet relics of value so vast and of virtue so great that the touch of them made the journey to palestine almost a superfluous ceremony wherever these pilgrims went these fragments of the true cross might be found and the happy faith of those who gave in exchange for them more than their weight in gold never stopped to think that the barren log which was supposed to have produced them must in truth have spread abroad its branches wider than the most magnificent cedar in lebanus nor probably even in the earliest ages was the traffic consequent on these pilgrimages confined to holy things the east was not only the cradle of christianity but a land rich in spices and silks in gold and jewels and the keen-sighted merchant looking to solid profits on earth followed closely on the steps of the devotee who sought his reward in heaven the first interruption to the peaceful and prosperous fortunes of pilgrims and merchants was caused by one of the periodical ebbs and flows which for nearly seven hundred years had marked the struggle between the powers of persia and of rome the kings of the restored persian kingdom had striven to avenge on the west the wrongs committed by alexander the great if not those even of earlier invaders and the enterprise which kosru nushirvan had taken in hand was carried on forty years later by his grandson kosru the second almost at the outset of his irresistible course jerusalem fell in a d six eleven nor was it the fault of the persians that the great churches of helena and constantine were not destroyed utterly by fire ninety thousand christians it is said were put to death but according to the feeling of the age a greater loss was sustained in the carrying off of the true cross into persia from palestine the wave of persian conquest spread southward into egypt and the greatness of kosru seemed to be unbounded when from an unknown citizen of mecca he received the bidding to acknowledge the unity of the godhead and to own mohammed as the prophet of god the persian king tore the letter to pieces and the man of mecca whose successors were to carry the crescent to jerusalem and damascus to the banks of the nile and the mountains of spain warned him that his kingdom should be treated as he had treated his letter 
For the present, the signs of this catastrophe were not to be seen. The Roman emperor was compelled to sign an ignominious peace and to pay a yearly tribute to the sovereign of Persia. But Heraclius woke suddenly from the sluggishness which marked the earlier years of his reign. The Persians were defeated among the defiles of Mount Taurus, A.D. 622-625, to and the destruction of the birthplace of Zoroaster offered some compensation for the mischief done to the churches of Helena and Constantine. Two years later, in 627, the Roman emperor carried his arms into the heart of the enemy's land, and during the battle of Nineveh, in which he won a splendid victory, he slew with his own hands the Persian general Razates. Kosru fled across the Tigris, but he could not escape from the plots of his son, and his death in a dungeon ended the glories of the Sassanid dynasty, under whom the Persian power had in the third century of our era revived from the death-sleep into which it had sunk after the conquests of Alexander. With Siroes, the son and murderer of Kosru, the Roman emperor in 628 concluded a peace which not merely delivered all his subjects from captivity, but repaired the loss which the Church of the Holy Sepulchre had sustained by the theft of the true cross. The great object of pilgrimage was thus restored to Jerusalem, and thither Heraclius during the following year betook himself to pay his vows of thanksgiving. With the pageant which marked this ceremony, the splendor of his reign was closed. Before his death, the followers of Muhammad had deprived him of the provinces which he had wrested from the Persians. Eight years only had passed after the visit of Heraclius to Jerusalem, when in 637 the armies which had already seized Damascus advanced to the siege of the holy city. A blockade of four months convinced the patriarch Sophronius that there was no hope of withstanding the force of Islam but he demanded the presence of the caliph himself at the ratification of the treaty which was to secure a second sacred capital to the disciples of the prophet. After some debate his request was granted, and Omar, who on the death of Abukir had been chosen as the vice-regent of Mohammed, set out for Medina on a camel, which carried for him his leathern water-bottle, his bags of corn and dates, and his wooden dish. The terms imposed by the caliph sufficiently marked the subjection of the Christians, but they imposed no severe hardships, and perhaps showed a large toleration. The Christians were to build no new churches, and they were to admit Mohammedans into those which they already had, whether by day or by night. The cross was no longer to be seen on the exterior of their buildings, or to be paraded in the streets. The church bells should be tolled only, not rung. The use of saddles and of weapons was altogether interdicted, and the Christians, distinguished from their conquerors by their attire, were to show their respect for the latter by rising up to them if they were sitting. On these conditions, the Christians were not only to be safe in their persons and fortunes, but undisturbed in the exercise of their religion and in the use of their churches. For the observance of this last stipulation, the rugged and uncouth conqueror showed a greater care than the patriarch, who regarded his presence in the Church of the Resurrection as the abomination of desolation in the holy place. The hour of prayer came, and Omar asked Sophronius where he might offer his devotions. 
here answered the patriarch but omar positively refused and repeated his refusal when he was led away into the church of constantine at last he knelt down on the steps outside that church and afterwards told the patriarch that had he worshipped within the building the documents securing its use to the christians would have been worthless his words were verified by the zeal of his followers who insisted on enclosing within a mosque the steps on which he had prayed but the mosque which bears omar's name rose over the great sacrificial altar of the temple which passed for jacob's stone this second conquest may have again checked the rush of pilgrims to the holy land but the difficulties which it placed in their way only added to the glory and the benefits of the enterprise and after all the victory of omar did little more than share the holy city between two races each of which acknowledged its sanctity and reverenced the relics of the righteous men whose bodies reposed beneath its sacred soil nor had the christians any stronger ground of complaint than that the saviour whom they worshipped was regarded by their conquerors as a prophet only inferior if not equal to the founder of islam nearly four centuries had passed away after the submission of sophronias to omar and during this long series of generations the west had without let or hindrance sent forth its troops of pilgrims in whose train merchants may have found sources of profit for more worldly callings if the palmy days during which the wanderers might regard themselves as practically lords of the land through which they travelled had passed away they underwent at the worst nothing which could greatly excite their anger or rouse the indignation of christendom nor was this state of things materially changed by the furious onslaught of hakem the mad fatimite sultan of egypt when in ten ten spurred on by a bigotry unknown to his predecessors he resolved to destroy the christian sanctuary in jerusalem the rule of these earlier sovereigns of egypt had been more beneficial to the christians than that of the abbasside caliphs of baghdad but hakem cared nothing for the worldly interests of his kingdom or of the profits to be derived from trade with the unbeliever and his soldiers were busied on the dignified task of demolishing the church of the resurrection and in attempts to destroy with their hammers the very cave in which as it was supposed the body of the saviour had been laid in this task they had but a very partial success and to hakem probably the suspension for a single year of the descent of the sacred fire scarcely outweighed the risks of a combined attack from the maritime powers of christendom for the present no such alliance was threatened but a cruel persecution of the jews in many christian cities was a symptom of the temper which was placing a great gulf between men who professed nevertheless to worship the same almighty father after this violent but transient storm the condition of the pilgrims became much what it had been before except that a toll was now levied on each pilgrim before he was suffered to enter the gates of jerusalem but this impost may have been rather welcomed than resented by the christians as it gave to the richer among them an opportunity of discharging it for their poorer brethren and so of securing for themselves a higher degree of merit the world too seemed to have taken a new lease of existence and everything appeared to promise a long continuance of comparative peace 
ten years before all christendom was fluttered with the expectation of immediate judgment at the close of the millennium which came to an end with the year one thousand a belief almost universal looked forward to the summons which would call the dead from their graves and cut short the course of a weary and sin-laden world but the tale of years had been completed the sun continued to rise and set as it had risen and set before and the flood of pilgrims soon began to stream toward the east in greater volume than ever men of all ranks and classes left their homes to offer up their prayers at the tomb of christ bishops abandoned their dioceses princes their dominions to visit the scenes where the redeemer had suffered and where he had achieved his triumph more numerous more earnest more zealous than all were the franks or the frenchmen whose name became henceforth in the east the common designation of all europeans for the weak and inexperienced for the women and the youths who pledged themselves to the enterprise there might be special and grave dangers nor were the strongest assured against serious if not fatal disasters with thirty horsemen fully equipped in Gaul, the secretary of william the conqueror set out on his journey to the holy land of these twenty returned on foot with no other possessions than their wallet and their staff but their losses had been caused probably by no human enemies and the men who had died could claim the credit of martyrdom only in the sense in which it is accorded to the holy innocents massacred by the decree of herod on the whole the difficulties of the enterprise were as much smoothed down as in a rude and ill-governed age they could well be the conversion of hungary in nine ninety seven opened a safe highway across the heart of europe and the pilgrims had a defender as well as a friend in st stephen the apostle of his kingdom but a change far greater than that which had been wrought by omar was to be effected by a power which had been working its way from the distant east and menacing the existence of the empire itself from the deserts of central asia the seljukian turks had advanced westwards overrunning the kingdoms of the persian empire and subjugating asia minor the inheritance of the caesars of rome in this task they received no slight help from the neutrality of a great part of the christian population in whom financial exactions and ecclesiastical tyranny had awakened feelings of strong discontent if not of burning indignation the rulers of byzantium had indeed done all they could to make the way smooth for the invaders the accumulation of land in the hands of a few owners had dangerously diminished the numbers of inhabitants nor was it long before the turks were in a majority throughout cappadocia phrygia and galatia and were enabled successfully to resist the crusading hosts in countries which they had conquered but as yesterday the seljukian sovereigns who had advanced thus far on the road to constantinople chose as their abode the city of nicaea in which the great general council of christendom in three twenty five had defined the catholic faith on the doctrine of the trinity and unity here these fierce invaders proclaimed the mission of mahomet as the prophet of god and issued the decrees which assigned christian churches to profanation or destruction and christian youths and maidens to a disgraceful and shameful slavery mountains visible from the dome of santa sophia 
were already within the borders of Turkish territory. The danger seemed imminent, and Alexios, the emperor of the East, invoked the aid of Latin Christendom. But the fire was not yet kindled, and for the time his appeal was made in vain. No long time, however, had passed before the Seljukian Tukush was master of Jerusalem in 1076, and the Christians learned to their cost that servitude to the fierce wanderers from the northern deserts was very different from submission to the rugged and uncultured Omar. The lawful toll levied on the pilgrims gave way before a system of extortion and violent robbery carried out in every part of the land, and the mere journey to Jerusalem involved dangers from which the bravest might well shrink. Insults to the persons of the pilgrims were accompanied by insults harder to be borne, offered to the holy places and to those who ministered in them. The sacred offices were savagely interrupted, and the patriarch, dragged by his hair along the pavement, was thrown into a dungeon, pending the payment of an exorbitant ransom. For the pilgrims themselves there might be dangers as they made their way through Europe, but these were increased tenfold on the eastern side of the Hellespont. Thus far they had journeyed in comparative security, and the merchants who sought to combine profits with devotion added to that security by their numbers and their prudence. The Easter fair of Jerusalem had drawn to the ports of Palestine the fleets of Genoa and Pisa, and had sufficiently rewarded the munificence of the merchants of Amalfi, the founders of the hospital of St. John. But commerce had no liking for perils of flood and field, and with the risk of disaster these fleets disappeared, and the caravans were confined to those for whom the sanctuary of Jerusalem was a goal to be reached at all costs. These went forth still by hundreds, they returned by tens or units, to recount the miseries and the wanton cruelties which they had undergone, and to draw fearful pictures of the savage tyranny exercised over the Christians of Jerusalem and of the East generally. The Church of Christ was in the iron grasp of the infidel, and the blood of his martyrs cried aloud for vengeance. Throughout the length and breadth of Christendom a fierce indignation was stirring the hearts of men, and the pent-up waters needed only guidance to rush forth as a flood over the lands defiled by the unbeliever. But unless the enterprise was to run to waste in random efforts, it must have the solemn sanction of religion. The people might be ready, but popular fury acting by itself will soon spend its strength like the hurrying tempest. Princes might be willing for a time to abandon their dominions, but the pressure of difficulties abroad and at home would soon make them grow weary of the task. There must be a constraining power to keep them to their vows by sanctions which stretched beyond the present life to the life after death, and these sanctions could come only from him who held the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whose seat was the rock of Peter, prince of the apostles. End of section 2